Alchemy is a seemingly magical process of transformation, creation, or combination. Beyond alchemy is more than that. It's about discovery. It's about the experience. It is about the order and chaos that brought us here. Beyond Alchemy is Making Sense's podcast in which greater speakers tell extraordinary stories of the technology world. This podcast goes from the conception of the idea to the exit. In each stage of this journey, we have the right person to answer the questions you may be asking yourself. There is no software without experience, and we build software people love with unique stories behind. Are you ready to bring your business to the next level? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond Alchemy, the Making Sense podcast. My name is Mariana Hurich. I've been involved in the technology space for over a decade now, with multiple hits during my career across the entire software development process. I'm based in Dallas, and I've been working with Making Sense for more than 10 years. I'm glad to dig deep into this fascinating journey. Thanks for joining us today. But enough about me. Let's talk about this show, Beyond Alchemy, in which great stories are told by greater speakers of the technology world. As we like to say, we build software people love with unique stories behind. And now you can hear them. So we're going to be walking you through this journey from the conception of an idea until the exit of a company. And of course, we're going to start from the very beginning, right? The conception of that idea. In order to do that, we have two great guests here on our episode. Um, their names are Jeff Patterson and Anthony Brydon. Let's start with Jeff first. He's a partner of Social Ventures, along with his longtime business co-founder, Anthony, where they work on developing new ideas and advising companies on product innovation and the startup world. He got his start in 1993 when he co-founded the Internet Underground Music Archive while studying music and technology at UC Santa Cruz. He oversaw product and technology at the Internet Underground Music Archive for 10 years through his acquisition by eMusic in 1999. Most recently, he was co-founder and CTO of Directly, which was acquired by Movate in 2022. Directly combined gig networks and AI to help companies like AT&T, Microsoft, Samsung, and Airbnb provide better customer service while providing new economic opportunities to their most loyal customers. He also was a co-founding CTO of Visible Path and Shopwell. When he's not working on new ideas, he spent time designing and building custom audio equipment, brewing beer, and playing Minecraft with his son. Now let's jump real quick into Anthony. He's a venture advisor at AI Fund and partner at Social Ventures, an LLC he owns with Jeff. Previously, he was co-founder and board member at Directly from inception through acquisition by Mobe. He also served as the company's CEO for its first decade. He also leads efforts on Visible Path and Shopwell. He started his stretch in Silicon Valley as an analyst at RV Weber and Company from 1995 to 1998. After bicycling out from Washington DC during the Netscape IPO that launched the internet era. At Yale University, he graduated with a BA in philosophy with a concentration in psychology and coursework in statistics. When he's not working, he likes to cycling and rowing. Jeff, Anthony, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having us. Good to be here, Mariana. How are you doing today? It's a lovely day in Noe Valley. It's a nice sunny day in San Francisco. Jeff, how's the East Bay? It's beautiful today. We got us on a day where it's not raining, which is awesome. <laughs> I think the rain is done for the year. Good. That's good. Good to hear. I know you've been getting a lot of rain on that area the last couple of weeks. 16% of California is out of drought for the first time in like 10 years. Wow. So we'll take it. It's a lot of rain. <laughs> Definitely is. All right, for the audience, um, Anthony and Jeff, uh, we, we've been knowing them for, for a very long time. Actually, we got uh, the opportunity to work with them on directly one of the companies that they've been part of for a very long time. Uh, but, you know, let's start from the beginning. Uh, let's share with the audience a little bit, you know, who you are and what you do. I can, I can kick that off. Uh, you know, Jeff and I have been partnered for a long time. We've been, we've been parted uh, for, uh, you know, two decades now across four different companies. Some of those companies have been consumer. Um, a noble company. Some of those companies have been B2B SaaS. Um, they're, they're all early stage startup entrepreneurial ventures. Our, our focus and our passion is very much in that zero to one stage. You know, that's the zero to one stage that Peter Thiel calls. And quantitatively, you know, what that zero to one means is from concept, you know, all the way to product market fit. And quantitatively, uh, you know, we think about zero to one as zero to a million dollars a month. You know, once your business is doing a million dollars a month, it's it's robust and, uh, you know, it's it's no longer that earliest, earliest of stages. Um, so we focus on that early, that early stage. That's 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 been our focus. Yeah. And that, that early stage that, uh, you know, it's we follow a pretty, pretty common pattern across all the, the ventures we do. There's there's typically five phases. That we go through with that you know the first identifying the opportunity that's really finding things that we're interested in uh, things that we think are important uh, and things we think we want to work on and then it's really coming up with hypotheses for uh, how to address those um, and concepts of products or services we can build uh, you know to address those and you know the the third part is really validating those it's testing them out testing the concepts validating and then refining them as needed uh, and revalidating and retesting that's an iterative process for sure but once we hit on something that's interesting uh then it's making sure it, it's funded funding the, the idea that we can actually build something out and get to a point we can prove it and then once we do it's growing it to, to product market fit and and turning it into a real business so mariano we you know you know jeff alluded to those five phases we you know we do it for our own companies, you know, when we're building and starting from something from, uh, from scratch, uh, when we're advising or we've invested in a company or, or kind of sit on the board, you know, we, we kind of advocate them to think about those early days, you know, in those, in those stages. Um, and then, you know, sometimes when we're working for a large company, uh, you know, we spun a company out of IDEO a decade back. Uh, but we're working when we're working with a larger or more established company, you know, they may be thinking of a new product line or they may be thinking of tackling a new market, you know, or a new model. And we're able to go through that kind of same process uh, with them. So obviously working for a big company is pretty different. The resources are, you know, infinite, you know, and compared to a startup, uh, you know, there's a lot of assets that a big company brings, but but uh, some parts are the same. And the process that you have described when, when you're going from zero to one in early stage, it is. It's a similar run. Good. I, I love that concept of zero, zero to one. And clearly, based on your, your background and, you know, the, the facts that you just shared with us, 
that's one of the main reasons why we thought about you for this episode, because you, you've been there and done that multiple times in the past. And Anthony um, and Jeff, you are describing uh, some of those five points and you talk about identifying opportunities. How, how do you identify them? You know, for, for us, a lot of it is, is, you know, as we encounter things in everyday life, as we, uh, you know, think about problems we're having getting work done or um, things that are happening in the real world, it's really trying to find things we can do, new opportunities or gaps that exist or needs that aren't being met that are, one, particularly interesting to us. So things that resonate with who we are and, and, and the things that, that excite us. Um, there's looking, trying to figure out the things that are important, like how important something is to the world, to us, to, uh, you know, uh, uh, solving pain that, that people are having. Um, and then a key thing is, is really, uh, you know, how imminent, uh, the issue or the solution is, you know, so is there a way to address and solve these things that, you know, you can do now that you couldn't have done, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, or even a new problem that's emerging in the world is, as technology is changing and, and society is changing. So for us, it's really, you know, we go through life, we we encounter things and, and we note down in a list, hey, here's something, here's something, here's something. And it just ends up being this huge list of, of ideas that we then say, how interesting, how important, how imminent is it? And if something resonates across the board, that's something we want to pursue and, and really see if there's a concept we can we can come up with a solution for. So I can I can bridge, you know, Jeff Jeff described that from us from a startup perspective. And all of those are learnings along the way that, that I hope anybody who's kind of early stage, you know, can benefit and learn from. You know, Jeff, you know, we call it the three I's, interesting, important, imminent. But you know, that you know, if, if if you just touch them one at a time, you know, what you choose to work on, it better be intellectually interesting to you. Because it is, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks, you know, weeks into months, months into years. And, you know, in the last case, year into a decade. So if the topic is not intellectually fascinating, that that's really dangerous. Um, it's got to be important. There is there is nothing worse than working for years on something and, and looking up and saying this is no chance of making a dent in the world. You know, it's just a, it's turned out to be an unimportant topic. And, you know, I think Jeff can speak to some of the imminent um you know aspects jeff jeff has the claim to fame of putting the first music file on the web in college in 1993 it became the basis for his company um you know and that's an industry that took decades you know to mature you know so so imminent means that there's a time horizon that you know things can you know can actually happen you know that, that you can move on now sometimes you can be too early as seen by that, where you're doing things way before there's you know what? And people really, are ready I for think it. It's really easy to be too early, and it's really easy to be too late. You know, right. that that is that that yes. is the knife edge of agony. Yes. Um, Mariana, is that that that's that's startups. You know, if you're thinking about a large company, um, I, I think some parallels you know apply when when you're running your business and uh, you know in a large company and you're selling your product. You know, your eyes and your ears perk up can perk up to these tangential opportunities you know your customer need you deliver x but your customer keeps talking about y you know you're running your business and there's some interesting businesses that are you know to the left and right of you that are do something you know a little bit subtly different so in a large company you know you're you're also running across those opportunities and the really difficult exercise is if you're a large company and you're incredible at execution 
sometimes it's because you have the blinders on and you're literally not looking up. And that strength can become a weakness because, you know, you lose your peripheral vision. So, you know, with a large company, it's, it's kind of keeping the peripheral vision open to those, those kind of tangential markets, those peripheral opportunities, noting them, and then finding a way to pursue them, you know, that doesn't distract from the core execution. Yeah. And yeah, this, 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 I have a lot of questions in my mind right now because either in those two spaces, the startup world and, you know, big companies, um, those are, you know, things that goes by hand. And I guess sometimes you identify existing pains or problems and you're focusing on, you know, delivering solutions uh, for those specific problems. Or sometimes you can, you know, generate needs, right? New needs that people didn't have before, right? And now they have it, which, you know, I, I can think endless examples of, of the last 20 years that that's been the case. But I guess you have concepts, you have hypotheses, you are envisioning how things are going to are gonna, you know, be. But, you know, how do you actually develop the idea? Where do you get started? Okay, so what, once, once the opportunity space is identified, you know, what, what happens next? Well, well, I think it is like, yes, going from an opportunity space to something discrete, you know, is pretty important. You can't, you can't begin to evaluate it until it, you know, until it comes down to ground level. You know, I guess Jeff could talk from a product perspective. I can talk from a, a more of a market perspective, a business and market perspective. There are a couple of artifacts that I have found invaluable when trying to take this ethereal concept, you know, down to ground level. Jeffrey Moore is, is famous for this positioning statement that he wrote. You know, it's a two sentence, often less than kind of 80 word sentence, you know, and I think it goes for, you know, this type of customer who has this type of problem. This is a product that does X, you know, unlike the competition. You might be familiar with that, that more statement. That positioning statement is, is a wonderful asset for crystallizing the business. You know, it forces you to say who the audience is, what their pain is, and in an incredibly few amount of words. So the positioning statement is a great way of bringing a high level concept down to ground level. Um, a product description. You know, not a, not a lofty product product description, but imagine that you're a user and you can log on and do X and view Y and, you know, Z happens, you know, something very practical and tactical. It's usually a couple paragraph that becomes a great asset. And then I am a huge fan, the, the, the third asset of putting your whole business model on one page. You know, some folks use the business model canvas. You know, I think of it like a Rubik's Cube, you know, with the six parts of the business that all have to come together. You know, but just those three assets that, you know, those are literally three pages, you know, two cent, a one sentence positioning statement, you know, a, a two or three paragraph product description, you know, and a one page summary of the business model. Um, you know, that that can crystallize it from a market perspective, um, you know, into into something that's almost ready to test. Jeff may have some kind of thoughts from more of a product orientation. Yeah, because for me, that. The, those assets Antony describes are always essential for kind of laying the the groundwork, the you know the setting for for what we're working on. But uh, you know, for for me, I, I typically like to go a, a step deeper to really make something more tactical that I can envision as a, as a real product. And you know, it doesn't have to be the right product. It's not going to be the ultimate, like the end result. But it's really saying, okay, we have this concept, we have a potential business, we have something, but let's talk about Let's think about what it could actually look like, how it could work, and, and who these users could potentially be. And so 
that's you know defining your user personas, the the people who might be buying this, who might be using it. It's starting to design how the product, uh, what product components would exist, how it integrates with the whatever ecosystem it's in, you know, and and then uh, sometimes some simple wireframes, not. You know, it's super low res, <laughs> you know, just sketches on paper even, um, but just something to, to make it kind of real in your mind of like, hey, this is something that, that could be built um, and that could be compelling and and uh, it could be something that, that we could that we could really build out. And that's, you know, that's typically not something where, you know, you're spending, you know, weeks on or anything. That's something you can whip up pretty quickly, but at least it's, it's something you can hold in your hand and say, hey, this is, uh, you know, I think this could be real and, and start start playing around with it. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, and I think that 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 portion. That, I mean, both are are very important, but I think uh, from your perspective, uh, Jeff, you as you mentioned, you went a little bit deeper, and I think that's when you start, you know, empathizing with users, and you know, start comparing, you know, mental models, and you know, I see things in this way. How how do the users see this, and how do they think about this problem? Do they see it the same way I see it? And then you start, you know understanding and maybe adjusting things on, on your product and your strategy, you know, which after translate to your business model, your product description, all, all the things that Anthony was mentioning. So I I have very clear, you know, how important it is, you know, validation and testing on an early stage, but I, I would like you to share your experience with the audience in terms of, you know, how important is validation and testing and if, if it's different from, you know, established companies compared with brand new companies. Yeah, so I, I can kick off there, Mariana. Like the 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 testing is critical. The the even if the opportunity that you've identified is fantastic, you know the hypothesis and the concept that you built that we've talked about it it's it's probably wrong. Um, you know, so so testing and validating that becomes critical. Steve Steve Blank has this famous quote that a startup is not just about the idea; uh, it's about testing and implementing the idea. And in general, you'll meet a lot of startups that are incredible at implementing the idea. You know, great designers, great developers, you know, they can, they can put a product into market really quickly. There are far fewer uh, companies and startups that are great about testing and validating, you know, that idea. You know, and it's really important because the second quote, the, the Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, the thinking fast and slow, you know, that whole book is about not taking your intuition you know, at face value, uh, that we've got a lot of biases when it comes to the hypothesis that we built and the concepts that, that, you know, you know, work against us. So, you know, the validation is critical. Uh, if you're a startup and you're, you know, your founders and you're about to bet your life on it, you know, or if you're a large company, you know, and, and you're about to bet an incredible amount of resources and potential distraction on it. So we invest pretty heavily in that validation say, uh, phase. You know, we call it a gut check, you know, and, you know, it is, you know, we've actually built a harness to test and validate and refine those early ideas in a, in a programmatic way. So if you're familiar with like uh, uh, things like Survey Manal, uh, SurveyMonkey, you know, as kind of survey products, and you're familiar with all the panels where you can go out and get responses from different types of buyers, you know, what, what Jeff and I built is we essentially built a harness that is on top of that, that is really focused on new introductions for comp uh, new product introductions. And it structures the inputs in and then it lets companies benchmark the results out. So, you know, if, uh, you know, I think uh, in, in kind of B2C, this means once you've got uh, the concept and the hypothesis that Jeff alluded to, 
you know, you've got a product description, you've got some wireframes, you've got a positioning statement. You know, you can do surveys and get real feedback really quickly. You can put these assets and these things in front of people and, and figure out, you know, is there demand for it? Is there demand for it from the type of buyers and the type of companies that you thought it was going to come from? Or does it come in other places? You know, is it a, is it a distinct idea? You know, or do they have kind of 10 ways of doing the same thing? You can figure out what their concerns are, what their objectives are, objections, and they, you can do it really pretty quickly. Um, so in a B2C, it's really quick to survey, you know, um, people. In B2B, the buyers can be harder to reach. They're decision makers, they're up there. So it can be a little tougher to survey uh, and you have to do some often some interviews, but, uh, you know, but, but you can learn a lot of things along the way. Um, I'll just add that, you know, in addition to a lot of the, the, the quantitative work from the surveys, there's a lot of qualitative info that comes out of it that helps you refine your concept even further as you, as you go. Um, you know, these are things like who, who the buyers are, the jobs to be done, how they're doing their job, what needs aren't being met, you know, how satisfied they are with, with the current tools that are out there. Um, and really just help you refine those, those personas over, over time. And so there's, um, you know, there's a lot of, of digging through the comments that come back through those in addition to, to whatever scoring uh, you're doing along the way. That's, that's just pure gold for, uh, for, for product people um, when they actually go to build out the idea. So Mariana has just said, you know, you can get that feedback and you can rinse and repeat it a few times. You can say, this is our hypothesis. We brought it through a cycle. We've got a lot of feedback. Let's refine it and retest it refine it and retest it. Um, you know, if you're a bigger company trying to make a decision, you can, you know, you do a few iterations and you're like, well, you know, you hit an asymptote of diminishing returns and you can, you can get a pretty clean assessment of what the demand is. Um, you know, you can validate that buyer. You can kind of understand what the total market is, you know, based on the demand um, and really use that to make a, a go, no go call. Um, so we, we, you know, there's always going to be intuition. There's always going to be a little of emotion. The goal that it's is that it's not 100%, you know, intuition and 100% emotion. Yeah, no, totally, totally. And I think this is this is a very important part when you're uh, either, again, opening a new business unit on, on, on an existing company or either, you know, creating a product from the scratch. This uh, validation and testing and iteration in earlier stages is, is very, very important. Uh, we always We always do this exercise where... We put people in a room and we ask them to, you know, Google for a big house, right? And you will be surprised how different, you know, the perception of a big house is. And this is exactly the same, right? When you're talking about a problem, how people perceive that, how people see. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Anthony, it's, it's very important to, you know, understand the buyer and, and see, you know, who they are and, and how are they going to be interacting and perceiving your product. And that will, you know, let you understand how you want to be seen and, and perceived by your users. So I think this is, this is very uh, very important stage and, and I'm glad you are highlighting this for, you know, for the audience, because sometimes the gut check is not done uh, on time and that probably could cause, you know, some bumpy roads for, for some founders in, in the startup world. Before I, I have a question, which is uh, we talk about the early stage in terms of, you know, how do we identify opportunities? How do we work with uh, concepts and hypotheses and what do we do with them? We also talk once we have that solid foundation, how do we do validation and testing? But, you know, at some point you need money, right? And you need to start from, from some, somewhere. So before we get into that specific topic, uh, we're going to do a little pause to hear a small public service announcements and we'll be right back. 
Making Sense bridges the gap between impossible and possible with great code and design. In Making Sense, we build software people love. And we are back. Before these uh, short public service announcements, we were talking about, you know, at some point you need to get money uh, to start, you know, developing your idea. There is obviously, you know, big differences between fundraising the idea for a, you know, internal initiative and doing a, you know, a product from the scratch or a startup. So can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I can, I can kick off, it, it, you know, in our, in our companies together, you know, Jeff and I have tag teamed on that, but I've, I've often, you know, been the point person, you know, on the fundraisers. I, you know, the, the first thing I'd say about fundraising is, you know, I think it can be very straightforward when you're fundraising on the top of a business that is architected well, you know, and, and uh, you know, a product that has potential. I don't think there's a lot of magic to it. If you're in a lucrative area and you've got a strong team and you've got a good plan, you know, for an early stage company, I, I think you can expect it to be, it has to be a well-run process, but you can expect it to be a straightforward process and not magic. You know, so if it's a, if it's a well-architected business and a well-architected fundraising process, um, you know, it's it's very high chances of success. So you know, I usually think about how to architect a smart fundraising process. You know, if I if I had to just kind of enumerate the steps for an early stage company, it 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 starts with identifying and researching who the right investors are. You know, not just the marquee names, but who is right for your stage, who is right for your uh, the type of business, the sector, you know, that you're in, and then, you know, what partners at those at those firms could really add a ton of value. You know, the the the, the next phase is it's about mapping connections, you know, in inroads and relationships to reach those firms and to reach those people. It's it's about the third phase, probably making sure you've got all of the assets. You know, you've got your deck, you've got your data room. You're not going to be pulling it all together on the fly. You know, before you start that outreach. And then when you start that outreach to do it in a very methodical manner, you know, for example, you know, I sometimes recommend starting 10 conversations every Monday, they will naturally settle into waves. And then your job is to kind of push those, those waves forward until you get a line of sight on that round and, and effectively how you'll, you'll close it. But, you know, you can think of it in any company, there's a lot of effort to manufacture a good sales process. You know, one that methodically pushes those leads forward, disqualifies the irrelevant ones out, you know, so that the company can win at scale. You know, in every company, there's a real effort to build a methodical recruiting process. Candidates in, candidates effectively move through to hire. And the fundraising period is shorter, but, you know, it's a process, you know, and it should be thought of, uh, you know, as a process, um, you know, with the, with the same kind of amount of kind of uh, rigor to it. Yeah, and, and one of the one of the key challenges we see with a lot of startups is really uh, looking for the right amount of money from the right people at the right time. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, entrepreneurs want to go out and, and get the big checks early and and you know get get going as fast as they can. But you know, we we think of it in a you know as, as a set of concentric circles of you know at the center there's the founders, right? Sort of one circle out, you have your friends and family. Beyond that, you have angel investors, uh, and then beyond that, you have the the institutional fund funders. And uh, you know, at that inception, when you just have an idea and you're trying to validate it, it's not necessarily smart to go try to get money from other people to risk on something that has a good chance of not even moving forward, right? So that's something you want to keep close to the center, self fund that, 
figure that out and figure out what you want to build. You know, when, once you reach the point where you have an idea you're pursuing, um, you know, then maybe find people who want to bet on you, not necessarily the idea, right? Because maybe they don't know the idea. So that's where you can find the friends and family or former colleagues who uh, really believe that you can take an idea and, and push it forward um, because you're you're not raising on any data points at that point, right? Finally, once you actually have validated the concept, started bringing something to the market, testing out, getting real data, you know, that's the point where you actually have a case to start going out to angels and, and then eventually, you know, once you're in the market and, and, uh, and showing real results uh, to, to institutional uh, money. And so we like that phase because um, it's reducing uh, the risk of the money, right? And it's making it easier to, to, uh, to find money once you're further out and further along. So Mariana, like I just to comment on on what Jeff said, you know, there's a lot of temptation. Entrepreneurs are often tempted to go, uh, you know, right to institutional money. I've got my idea, I've got my concept. Let me talk to venture firms and the like. You know, I, I liken that to skipping grades. You know, th these are a progression. The, the, some founder investment, friends and family, angels, institutions. Those those are grades and gates that that are logical to do in that fashion. So. Can you skip a grade? Yes. But when we think around of our classmates, you know, from grade school, how many people actually skip grades? It's the, the exception rather than the rule. And, you know, it's a lot easier to, to just get nowhere by trying to skip a grade, you know, than, than by moving methodically uh, through it. So obviously that's the, that's the early stage stuff. Obviously it's wildly different if you're spinning uh, a new product you know, or a new market at a, at a large company. If you're the, I guess what they call the intrapreneur, you know, as opposed to the entrepreneur. But when we've done that, we've, you know, it's been a lot of work structuring the internal team. Uh, it's been a lot of work structuring the assets that the larger company is going to bring to those, that internal team uh, and the relationships. Sometimes it's the larger company's sales team selling the product. And then formalizing those relationships. You know, we spend a lot of time treating that intrapreneurial group as if it was separate, making sure that you're documenting exactly what the sales team is going to do, exactly what the business development team needs to do. And, and when you've got to fund it, you know, treating it like it is a venture round. You know, it may be a wholly owned uh, idea. It may be a wholly owned subsidiary. But the more formal that you can get in that, we find uh, the better. Uh, you know, when, when those things are not formally de designed, you know, the strategy for the large company changes, you know, and everything gets a little bit blurry and shifts. When it is formally defined, then you've essentially protected a new market or a new product that you're running at. So, you know, we help do that. Okay, yeah, and I think that's, that's the, you know, the previous step before actually, you know, finding product market fit, which I think is one of the, you know, most important things in this because that's where we're gonna you know give us traction and and you know an adoption so what can you tell us about you know that what people call approach to the product market fit uh jeff's gonna have more more to say than i do here like some of the assets i alluded to earlier uh become really important you know we talked about that positioning statement you know that doesn't go away that 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 stays on the whiteboard because that position statement might be changing and you know it it, it helps kind of focus. So, you know, there's some things like, you know, putting that vision up there, putting that North Star metric that measures how well you achieve that vision, uh, putting that positioning statement and that one page business model up on that page. 
that becomes really important as a kind of a guiding light because, you know, I think, you know, Andreessen will talk all, all about the, the winding, twisting, crazy road, you know, from inception to product market fit and how many turns there are along the way. Um, so those things will change, but having them on a whiteboard to kind of keep you honest, not to dogmatically and religiously follow them because they have to change, but to be aware of uh, and calibrate on how they're changing, you know, as you go through the product testing and, and product re uh, refinement. That's, those are some of the things that kind of we start to, but obviously the road to product market fit has a disproportionate amount to do with the product because the earlier phases is vetting and validating a lot of the market. Anthony, before we get into you know that deeper level that that Jeff is providing uh, along the way, um, so how often do you think people should be revisiting you know their position and statement, their you know business model? So what would be like a good time frame from your experience that people should be you know revisiting and and you know revalidating those? So I, I it's a it's a really good question. That when I when I allude to putting it on the whiteboard, it's to it, the idea there is to have it constantly envision, you know, because it will be stressed and it should be stressed. Just take the positioning statement I talked about, you know, it will say, you know, for example, you know, you're selling a sales product or something. It'll, you know, it'll say for uh, uh, senior sales executives, you know, at mid-sized companies who X, well, you know, it's, you can be a little bit into product testing and figure out, hey, it's not the VP of sales that is our buyer. You know, it turns out it's the head of revenue operations, you know, that's dealing with all this technology. So it's it's really easy for that to make a small shift. If you've got that positioning statement up on the board, you know, you look at it and you say, this is no longer what we're doing. Let's rewrite that positioning statement. And that's a helpful exercise because everybody you know, rewrites that positioning statement. When you rewrite that positioning statement, the team that is thinking about how they're going to market the product, all of a sudden they're thinking, oh, we need different channels to reach that buyer. You know, all of the channels that we were thinking about are were for the VP of sales. You know, and the designers, they had this big persona of the VP of sales out closing deals, you know, never being in the office, always being on the road. You know, and all of a sudden it's someone who's always in the office and data oriented and always in front of a computer. You know, so I, I think there's I think there's two answers to that, Mariana, like um, the, the constantly putting those up, you know, as as kind of North Stars and, and making sure that you're adjusting them as you go and that it's a, a well communicated and very explicit effort. And then with major iterations, you know, sometimes retesting the whole thing. And at periods where there's a proposed change to the, you know, high level product description and the high level customer profile, you know, and there's, there's a little, there's a lot riding on it. There's a lot of internal kind of debate. That's a really good time to actually do something that's a little more formal. Good. And uh, Jeff, what can you tell us about, uh, again, I'm doing quoting marks here, the road to product market fit more from the uh, product perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot that's been, uh, written on this <laughs> approach for sure, and and this is definitely a uh, a full podcast worth of information. But um, you know the 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 key thing here is really um, lean iterative process to testing product uh, with the market. So it's it's it starts with you know identifying 
who you're building for, identifying what it is you're building as an MVP, the minimally viable product. So what is the, the first thing you can put out there that can actually resonate with people? Building it, testing it, measuring how it performs and, and, and iterating, right? And so, you know, when we do that, we're pretty uh, methodical about all of it, right? So on the definition phase, uh, there's, I personally like the, the Kano model. Um, it's a it's a way that you can say what are all the features that go into a potential product we're building. You know, let's run some surveys to see if people would be you know how delighted they are if something's there, how disappointed they'd be if it wasn't there. Um, and when you combine those scores, you end up with uh, an idea of which features are ones that you know are absolutely must-haves for the product to to even you know be be deployed or be used. Which ones are the ones that are really going to excite people, and which ones that are going to make you stand out in the market, as well as which ones you shouldn't even waste your time on, right? So, when you look at the features under that type of a lens. You can then start saying, okay, for an MVP, what are the most important things we need to show? We need obviously need the things that you know people can't use the product without, but we also want to make sure we have things in here that are differentiating, right? So let's build the, the most base feature, features that we can where people understand what it is that we're trying to do and gets them excited about it, right? Um, when you build it, you want to be as agile as possible. You know, quick releases, uh, constantly releasing, constantly building, and and you know, designing as you go. And then what we typically do is, is every time we build something or release something, is we have a metrics harness where we will measure uh, how it's being used, measure um, which features are being activated, and, and try to define up front what KPIs we think are the most important, right? So we can then see if it's actually hitting those KPIs and, and, and how it's performing along the way. Um, and as we go, obviously we iterate. We're never hitting our goals out of the gate. We're never getting the usage we want. And so it's why isn't this working? Is it just people don't care about it? People don't want it? Do we not build it right? Are we missing a feature? And how we can how can we go back to the drawing board to improve that? Um, and those iterations can be small loops of trying to improve something. They could be big loops. You know that you know Zanti was talking about makes you revisit your positioning statement and maybe you find a different user or, or a different buyer. You know, and and from a you know, in the in a B2B context, we'll also do similar processes for the for the selling motion, not just in the product. It's much easier to pitch a product in a B2B than it is to build a product, deploy it, and test it. Right. So in those cases, it comes down to let's build a different sales deck that positions different features and are we getting the callbacks or not. That's almost an easier, lighter way to test than than all the product iteration, but um, but it's all kind of the same principle. Well, Anthony, Jeff. I know we put you through a very tough task, which is, you know, keeping it tight. I know you can talk for hours about each of these topics and you have a lot of knowledge <laughs> to share. Uh, we're going to put your contact information on the episode description so people can reach you out if you have <clears throat> more questions. Uh, but unfortunately, we we are approaching the end of the episode. Is there any, any closing thoughts that you would like to share with the audience before uh, we finish the episode? It's good you're, you're putting out contact information if, if, if folks have questions. Um, they can feel free to reach out uh, to us, you know, if they're if they're validating things or they've got, you know, hypothesis and they, they want some insight and potentially some help uh, doing a gut check. Uh, we like doing that type of stuff. That's that, you know, that that's just uh, two areas. But any questions, folks should feel free. Agreed. We're uh, always happy to help people with gut checks and and, uh, and uh, you know, plan out their 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 initial roadmap and, and where they can take the product. Uh, it's been a blast having you both on the episode. Thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. 
Uh, we really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Definitely. Can't wait to, can't wait to hear the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned for those. I'm excited to hear the series as well, Mariana. Thanks a lot for having us on. So for the audience, uh, the next episode will be how to validate competitive advantage with Team Student. Stay tuned. Bye.